0: Happy New Year, DSR listeners. This year, we're adding even more content and benefits for members, including a new weekly column written by David Rothkopf, more exclusive content, new shows and hosts, and soon, a new membership option that will include a mix of live and virtual events and interactive discussions. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. Membership is just $5 per month or $50 per year. To become a member, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you, and Happy New Year. Nine, twelve, ten. Twelve. 28 2 23 This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington DC and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world Hello and welcome to another of our weekly special editions of the podcast where we talk to someone who we think deserves some one-on-one conversation. Today, I'm real pleased that we are joined by Ruth Ben-Gayat, who's a professor at NYU, author of the book Strongman, a specialist in authoritarian forms of government. And uh, I uh, welcome you here to the podcast today. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: I think you and I were on a TV show Week or two ago, and we were talking about some things, and it dawned on me that as we were talking, and you were made some very compelling points, that we kind of need, you know, the uh, doomsday clock that the the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists does for nuclear peril in the world. I think we kind of need a, a doomsday clock for democracy in the United States of America that we can move back and forth as we see things taking us nearer and closer to that. Because I think the peril is real, and I think we have to find a way to raise public consciousness of this. You've been doing a great job on that front. Do you think that the peril has subsided in the two years since January 6th, or that it continues as it was, or has possibly grown? What's your thought?
1: I think it's, it's actually in some, well, in some ways, it's the Biden administration, it came out from the start as a very strong pro-democracy, both globally and at home. That was part of their agenda. But January 6th was a profoundly radicalizing event for the GOP. And they have doubled, on January 7th, they doubled down instead of going back toward the, the, the rule of law, the center disavowing Trump. And so they have accelerated their transformation into an autocratic party. So the drama we're living through, and I think about this every day, what do you do in a bipartisan system, because not all countries have just these two parties, what do you do in a bipartisan system when one of those two parties basically exits democracy? And now we have, you know, one third of the House is election deniers. We have extremists who have become the lawmakers. And so all of the measures and kind of indexes that we use to talk about what you call autocratization, when a party becomes autocratic, is going on with the GOP.
0: But what do you do? You ask yourself the question. What do you think the answer is?
1: I mean, I don't have one answer. The problem is, I've, you know, I study other cases around the world, and the pro- one of the, the biggest challenges is the two-party system, because in other countries, you can band together, other parties can band together and take on the far right. And here, the far right is one of the two parties. So in a way, the GOP, I mean, we do have a lot of hopeful science in the midterms in that a lot of the most extreme candidates uh, didn't do well. And we also know, which is why the GOP is pursuing minoritarian rule, that many of its positions are too extreme for the bulk of the American population. So that is very hopeful.
0: Does it concern you when you see things happening like the Republican Party you know, moving forward with a This weaponization of government committee, which is, you know, I mean, I'm sort of sorry that so many in the press have just taken their language as it is, because really what they're trying to do is eliminate checks on authoritarian government. What's your thought on that?
1: Yeah, that's. I'm glad you brought that up, because when we think of authoritarianism, we think of the imposition of controls on people. However, equally important to authoritarians, they actually govern in practice, is making it easier, is rolling back any kind of checks on the commission of crime, rolling back checks on corruption, rolling back checks on violence. And so that kind of getting, allowing politicians to feel that they would be rewarded for corruption and rewarded for violence is what Trump did so superbly. That was one of his main things he did when he submitted the GOP to an authoritarian political culture. And the GOP, their culture has shifted. Their political culture is now authoritarian. And so and so turning back these checks, and this this also hooks up with plunder. So you want to deregulate, deregulate now you know, so you can plunder national national resources. Trump partly decriminalized domestic violence. So allowing people to have their worst impulses and be rewarded for it uh, is how you get criminals in government. And the other thing I'm seeing, uh, an outcome of this, uh, when you have a party that is, aims at sustaining some kind of illiberal rule, whatever it's going to look like, you have to look at who's going in the party and who is coming out, and we've been seeing and following this very closely for a few years, and you see that you know the the Liz Cheneys, the Adam Kinzigers, the people who stand up for rule of law, who in many other ways are you know very conservative, they're all out and who is coming in many times it's criminals. it's fraudsters like george santos George santos is is a uh, of course we were going to have a George Santos. It's very Trumpian. And you have Oath Keepers who become the lawmakers. And so this dates from the fascists and the Nazis. They, They recruited criminals to come into the government because they already had the skills necessary for corrupt and violent rule. It's very bleak, but this is this is what I see going on. It's called like the renewal of the cadres of the party, the renewal of the political elite. And look how many people who participated in January 6th are being encouraged to run for office. They are the new, it's like the new badge of honor is having participated in this violent coup attempt.
0: Another thing that has my uh, head exploding, I, I think I may have a high gunpowder content in my head because it explodes a lot. but. I was struck that in the past forty-eight hours, we've seen a movie premiered Sundance that sort of said the FBI didn't really look into Brett Kavanaugh in the way that they should have, and then we had a FBI senior counterterrorism official arrested for actually being on the payroll of Oleg Deripaska, you know, who is not just an oligarch, not just an oligarch tied to the Russians, but is an oligarch closely tied to Donald Trump, Paul Manafort, the whole Trump campaign. Strangely, this didn't make as many of other people's heads explode as I did. In Trump said, see, it proves they, were, they shouldn't look into me, which I didn't quite understand. But it's part of a pattern. The FBI had people within the FBI who clearly were not following through in their job because they were sympathetic to Trump. The Secret Service had people within the Secret Service that were clearly working for Trump and not to support the Constitution or for the rule of law. We had people in the Department of Defense doing the same kind of thing. This seems to me to be another pattern with echoes back into the 20s and 30s. When you see it, do you see that as well?
1: Yes, and it came uh, to a very dramatic conclusion on January 6th too in a very in a very practical way and this is called a dereliction of duty. And it's very important part of corruption because for example in a coup because a third of strongmen is about coups some people have to act and some people have to stand down so that the operation can proceed. And more generally, if you are trying to have a corrupt culture that takes hold and becomes normalized. And that's what Trump was trying to do to the institutions, the civil service, not following through, not reporting, you know, abuses, not reporting the Hatch Act, not regulating. This goes back to what I was saying before. Dereliction of duty is absolutely crucial. And again, on January 6th, we saw this was one application where the reinforcements didn't arrive. Where we learned that Department of Homeland Security and other agencies did not follow up on tips, which also allowed the operation to proceed. So, this is again a very, uh, very important dynamic. I'm always trying to look at the big dynamics that are going on with the GOP, with the institutions, and it it makes perfect sense that it's come out, uh, not not fully for sure, how much. Uh, complicity there was with Trump and overturning the election on January 6th in these, in these agencies. Because when you have a coup attempt, it's always uh, you always have a broad swath of elites who are involved. That's like one of the rules of coups. And I was waiting for this to come out, and it, indeed it partly has.
0: Another place we're seeing a sort of institutional push towards authoritarianism and by the way, I didn't mention, as I as I intended to, the in the, with regard to the last question, the amount of support for right wing extremists within police forces, which I think is a, a problematic as well. But another place that we see this is um, in the Supreme Court, and we may actually see some decisions from the Supreme Court that shift power away from the federal government and federal government regulation of. Elections and move it towards state governments, which supports minority rule, supports the concentration of power in a smaller and smaller group. And of course, you know, you've written about strongmen, but there, there's no government that's all about one person. It's always about a clique, a coterie, a cadre of people with shared interests. And in this case, there is a, a small group of people who are seeking to concentrate power in their hands and to take it out of the hands of the majority. Do the moves within the Supreme Court also echo to you of these earlier times?
1: Yeah, yeah, because it's not just earlier times. It's also Victor Orban, you politicization of the judiciary. We have, you know, what is really a rogue Supreme Court now. They're a, a very activist court in the far right direction. And I was very struck that Justice Thomas, when his wife was, when, you know, the press accounts came out about her, her texts and her involvement in trying to overturn the election, he announced that he was going to look in to revising a ruling that would make it easier to sue the media. So I thought, ah, that's an example of politicization of the court. Now the, you, but you raised something really interesting about uh, local local governments, and you know I, I watch very carefully. Of course, Ron DeSantis, The uh, second I saw him, I thought this guy is really bad news. I've written about four or five op eds on him, and you know there is a there is a tradition of strongmen who start at the local level. Modi did this, and Duterte. They had local positions, you know, Duterte was a mayor, and they tested out this kind of repression and all the all the things they wanted to do. And then they scaled it up at the national level. So that's very worrying. And one of the things that happens, and this is this question of, you know, Trump's future, right, is that when somebody like Trump comes onto the scene and gets in the system, right, he they spawn imitators. Again, they shift the political culture in ways that spawn imitators. And so Ron DeSantis is the clearest example where he even, you know, we can laugh at him uh, mimicking Trump's, uh, you know, hand gestures, but he absorbed the lessons of being whatever people need him to be in that moment, and he's revised his positions. So he's very clearly, you know, using Florida as this kind of, Dino Badaya calls it DeSantis stand, right? making this kind of autocracy-like uh, governance, testing things out for scaling up, he hopes, with a presidential run. So that, that's also on my radar um, because it has precedence in authoritarian history.
0: Yeah, in fact, in DeSantis's case, you know, he's done some things that, to me at least, seem to echo fascist governments or authoritarian governments even more than what Trump did in the sense of trying to fire officials who disagreed with him, changing you know what you can teach in the schools, punishing companies that don't agree with his political message. It's a little, I don't know, it seems to me a little bit more overtly thuggish. What do you think?
1: It is. Now, Trump tried to do those things too, but the thing about Trump is that his, his goals were different than any other president, Republican, or Democrat. And he spent a lot of time in not only, you know, kind of cultivating extremism and hatred, propagandizing superb propagandists, but he was, like the other autocrats, he wanted to make money off of the presidency. So this is one of these things, think about this like once a week, and it makes my head explode. Um, he spent one-third of his time Between 2017 and basically when the pandemic came, one-third of his time he spent visiting Trump-branded properties, going golfing, going—even when he went abroad and state visits, he had to go to Trump properties. So I'm saying this because DeSantis is not distracted by those particular things, and so he's pursuing a more pure—he's able to pursue a more pure agenda, pure program. He's not trying to— not that he's much better than Trump, but he's, he's different. Nobody is really like Trump. He, he's, a, he's a very unusual figure. And what if, you mentioned Paul Manafort before. One of the things I get asked most often is, like, is there a manual? Does Trump, he doesn't read? So is he following a playbook? And one of the things that scared me, in a way, when I did the research uh, for strongmen is that he surrounded himself by people who had decades of experience wrecking democracy. And Paul Manafort and Roger Stone had a lobby firm that was hired by Ferdinand Marcos in the 80s to pull off a fraudulent election. And so he had these people who had a wealth of expertise and also Bannon, of course, and Michael Flynn. And all of this came to bear on his presidency. But his, one of his main goals was trying to make money and defraud the Amer- his followers, of course. That's the sad thing, right? Defrauding the followers when they love him so much. So DeSantis is operating a little differently and in a more, in a sense, in a more rigorous manner. So he is extremely dangerous.
0: It's interesting that there's a cadre out there of professional election thieves, you know, that, that, that this is what they do. They go around and they sell the theft of elections as a skill set i I th- you know the time that uh, you and I most recently appeared on the same show, I think it was tied to the uprising in Brazil, and clearly there was mimicry between what happened in Brasilia and what happened in January sixth but you've mentioned orban, you've mentioned Modi, you've mentioned duterte's past, but has some successors in the government that's currently there. what's your sense of the uh this sort of global movement towards authoritarianism that I think can fairly be argued that Putin has been among the leaders of, uh, that Trump and those people you mentioned are among the chief exporters of. Is there a pushback? You know, Trump lost, Bolsonaro lost, or is there gains being made? Netanyahu certainly is doing many of the things you've talked about. AMLO in Mexico is doing many of the things you've talked about. What's your Sense of the state of play.
1: Yeah, there is, without a doubt, authoritarianism is increasing, and now the latest uh, free, you know, there's this Freedom House report and V-Dem Institute. They estimate that up to seventy percent of the world's population is now living under some form of illiberal rule. So that's going on, and one of the things I am trying to now make Americans understand is that there are these. Autocratic networks, international networks. And their hubs are, you know, Brasilia, Moscow, Budapest, and now Rome with Melo and even neo fascists. And the GOP is not just an autocratic party in the sense that wants to kind of damage democracy at home, but it's totally embedded in these far right networks. And Sometimes when I'm on, uh, I was on PBS, and I, I said this in a rather matter-of-fact manner, there's so, there's, so many, there's so many things that go on that, that show that this is true. And people were very shocked. They wrote to me, and they said, how can you say that? How can you say that the GOP is part of this international fascism in a way? But that's a fact, and we have to just, the sooner we accept that, there's also the foreign policy, soft power, hard power aspect. However, we are actually living through this incredible moment that doesn't get enough press. 2019 was a global record for nonviolent protests. And since then, despite the pandemic, we had the largest protest movement in America. 20 million people were involved in Black Lives Matter events. And now we have Iran. We had outbreaks in China. Each one is different. But authoritarianism, because of COVID and also Putin's war, which has been a case of autocratic backfire, it has totally shredded the idea of the unbeatable, the genius strategist Putin, the unbeatable Russian army. It's revealed the corruption. It's really revealed how authoritarianism ravages institutions. He's got a kleptocracy, so it's particularly marked. But we are actually in this interesting moment where there could be growing momentum um, and there is in the world the global reaction to, to Putin and transition in part from fossil. It's accelerated a bit of transition from fossil fuels, which autocrats historically depend on. So I would like us to talk more in general about the pushback about this extraordinary world movements of protest. And and it gives hope to people too. Otherwise it's it's factual. So that's why we have to Talk about it and analyze it, but it's also important so we don't just uh, feel, you know, the gloom and doom. And there's and there's nothing we can do about it because history shows there's plenty we can do about it.
0: Yeah, and I mean, for example, just the other day, I think there were something like 140,000 Israelis protesting Netanyahu, which somebody noted was the equivalent of 4 million Americans going out. And, and, and so it's a, it is a big, a big movement. By the way, I like the idea of autocratic networks a lot. Maybe that's your next book. I hope there is more of a sort of seeing the broader global pattern here, because I think one of the challenges from a foreign policy perspective for the United States and NATO is not just to push back on military force on behalf of these autocrats like Putin and Ukraine, but to be more successful in pushing back on the political initiatives, covert and overt, because whereas Putin's been very unsuccessful in many respects in Ukraine, this promotion of autocracy has actually been sort of what he's best at.
1: Mm-hmm. it has been it's i feel like uh my first book Fascist modernities it was a study of H- italian fascism but it had extensive i wrote extensively about the international networks that the fascists generated within the axis the new order when world war 2 it was an entire world of stuff going on and so this is why when i see this happening and one of the things that really struck me, um, right before the Italian elections, Georgia Meloni gave an interview to the Washington Post. And she was trying to rehabilitate herself. She says, oh, I'm a conservative, I'm not a fascist, all this stuff. However, most interesting thing in there, the rest is BS, is that she said that the GOP, she said, we have extensive networks with them. And she's referring to her party, which is a neo-fascist party. It still has in its logo the flame of the original neo fascist party. There's no like it's just there's no doubt about that. And she said we talked to them and she mentioned some institutes that are Republican institutes that are for international relations, which I didn't know about, and she said their struggles are our struggles. So she recognizes the GOP as a kindred spirit. And there are initiatives that I am going to, I don't know if I'll write a book, but I'm going to write about this. But it was a a hint into a world that we need to explore more because, you know, democracies, we've been very good. Uh, We have NATO, we have defense, you know, in terms of national security and defense things, we've got all kinds of networks and organizations, but we are going to have to, the Cold War era had a lot more of, democracy promotion international networks and i think we're going to have to invest more resources in this to counter the very effective networks that are strengthening every day
0: Yeah, right it's an interesting challenge because of course for most of the past 75 80 years we've talked about promoting democracy as an american priority internationally with the exception of the trump years where they sort of took it out of the language of the State Department. But for most of that period, democracy was the alter- the, uh, an alternative to communism. And whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you opposed communism. We are now in a period where the alternative to democracy are the views embraced by the Republican Party. And so they, we are on both sides of this battle right now. And so it's very hard to mobilize sustained action against it
1: the the other issue is it's just not communism versus fascism anymore in fact Xi Jinping and Putin you know they they have their accord they show up for their photos together they have the propaganda accord and uh, so you have they're a fascist and a communist and so the world has shifted the international order has shifted and we need to think in a different way about things. It's Absolutely
0: right. Perfect place for us to draw this conversation to a close. Thank you for joining us, Ruth. Hope we can continue the conversation. Uh, hope those of you who have not read Ruth's prior books, go out and do it. She's really making a very important contribution to an issue that's absolutely critical. And that frankly, until the past few months, we haven't even been able to To speak its name. I think it's fairly recently that something you've been doing, Ruth, but I think it's fairly recently that people have actually been able to call fascism, fascism. That's partly your contribution. So congratulations on that. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, we'll be back to continue our tracking of these things each and every day. Please join us at the uh, dsrnetwork.com. Become a member if you're so inclined. And uh, for now, thanks for joining us. And thank you very much, Ruth, for being here for this episode.
1: It's a pleasure.